the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I, this, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm Analytics not. don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports narratives. I'm Chadwick Matlin, editor at 538. With me in the studio, the old standbys, Kate Fagan, ESPNW columnist. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. And Neil Payne. Neil, you're looking fresh today. Oh, thanks, Chad. I think it's because we're in a different configuration in the studio. I'm sitting further from you, and so you can't see me up close. You didn't even have our emergency potato chips before the show to pep up our energy either. You're just fresh yeah, on after right. all. So fresh and so yeah. clean. So on today's show... Can Tom Brady really be that key to the Patriots' success? We're going to talk a bit of an NFL preview. Um, not talk about every team, but some teams. And we're going to talk about why statisticians, or at least their models, are so cautious about forecasting the number of wins that, that a team might have. Then we'll move on, and we will kick off Hot Takedown's second-ever crowdsourcing project. You listeners have already fixed the NBA lottery. Now you can beat Madden using... The worst quarterback of all time. That worst quarterback is 538's own Walt Hickey. We'll get there. And then we will send you to Flushing for the latest episode of Baseline, 538's tennis podcast. Have you guys been listening? It's been really good. So, Tom Brady, suspended no more. Somehow, Deflategate is still with us. Can you believe? Were you thinking, guys, that the story would go on for, what has it been, six months now? Since January. Well, not only that, uh, Spygate is still with us. The, all of the gates are with us today. I, I can't even believe it. Right, Neil, you're talking about the investigative report that ESPN just put out, saying that in some ways Deflategate was a makeup call for Spygate. Right. Which was kind of common sense, right? A lot of people were like, this has to be a cumulative effect here, what we're seeing with, with the punishment. But the way Don Van Natta and Seth Wickersham sort of broke it down and took you inside some rooms to show the continuation from that, from what was it, seven, eight years ago to today, was definitely added info to the conversation. The NFL has a long memory, <laughs> or at least Roger Goodell has. Um, so want to talk about Tom Brady's four-game suspension, which was overturned by a judge last week on procedural grounds. There was nothing about whether or not he did or did not cheat, nothing about whether or not he did or did not obstruct the investigation by getting rid of his cell phone. It was much more about whether or not Roger Goodell gave Tom Brady the appropriate notice that he could have a four-game suspension at some point. Um, here's uh, And the overturning led Shannon Sharp to say that the Patriots had narrowly avoided some hellfire that awaited them. I never really worry about the Patriots as long as 12 is under center. When he leaves, I'm going to be extremely worried. But as long as he's there, if you're a Patriots fan or a Patriots player, you should sleep really well at night knowing 12 got our back. So, Neil, were the, were the Patriots that doomed with, without Tom Brady for four games? 
Well, uh, it depends on what you look at. Uh, and we did a little modeling ourselves where we tried to isolate the quarterback's uh, contribution and control for like his rushing support and his receivers and also the defense. And we found that losing him for the four games would have cost the Patriots about a half a win on the season. And that was corroborated by... A lot of other places, like Vegas, downgraded the Pats by a half a win when they thought that he was going to be suspended. And also the Football Power Index, which is sort of ESPN Stats and Info's power rating system that has a has a, a variable for quarterbacks uh, who are out of action, also said that they would lose about a half a win. So it's kind of interesting that all of these mathematical systems come together and say it would have been somewhat costly in that half win, and we'll probably talk about this later, that it's important when you're a team like the Patriots and you're sort of each half win counts when you're trying to make the playoffs or get the number one seed. But at the same time, it doesn't sound like it's that much, not not earth-shattering uh, compared to you know what, what some of the predictions were from non-statistical people. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a hellfire if you take half a game over four games and you would think... So we're saying, and I don't know if it extrapolates perfectly, but Tom Brady's worth two games to the Patriots? Yeah, probably, yeah, about two games. If you miss the entire season, they would win two fewer games according to all these statistical models. But, I mean, then when you think the the frequency with which 9 and 7 teams win the Super Bowl versus 11 and 5 teams or 12 and 4 teams, it's probably pretty significant. I mean, two games over the course of an NFL season, maybe it's not a hellfire for the Patriots, but it's certainly the difference in a lot of ways, between competing for a Super Bowl this coming year and not. Right, and, and there's something about that two games if Brady somehow missed like an entire season that feels kind of low. Like you think about the Indianapolis Colts when they lost Peyton Manning. That entire team fell apart and it just sort of snowballed. And there was uh, one person that made that prediction beforehand. Uh, my, our colleague Chase Stewart, who wrote one of our NFL previews, he said before that Colts season that uh, the Colts were so constructed that they needed to play with a lead. They needed to, you know, they had all of these pieces that sort of hinged on Manning so the team was less than the sum of its parts and then when you took out the sort of like linchpin of the whole operation the whole team sort of imploded Uh, and you could make a case possibly that that would have happened you know in any case of an elite quarterback like if an Aaron Rodgers goes down or even a Brady but uh, based on the statistical evidence at least that we have it would seem to be that you know you can kind of compartmentalize things and the Patriots might be the team that does that best of all because they're so shrewd about how they build a team uh, overall. The Brady example, though, suggests to me that the NFL, and we, we spoke about this a bit, I think, around MVPs maybe or something like that. The NFL is, I, is ma- the teams are just totally a sum of their parts. And in a way that you can, you know, you'd slot, let's say, somebody else in for Tom Brady, you'd lose two games, but maybe that means you have enough cap room to improve your defensive line or something and you are able to salvage a half game there and you're able to improve your running back and can salvage a half game there and maybe and quarterbacks are are their own case but it it seems to me like the Tom Brady example is is pretty illustrative of just how interconnected everything is in the NFL you're right it goes back to the conversation we had about which in which sport do players have the most impact on a game and I think if I remember correctly Chad you thought it would be the NFL like a dummy (laughs) especially at the in your example, was the QB position because of the dominant myth we have that QBs in the NFL make or break teams. And while that's the QBs, because two games is significant and QBs have a significant effect, perhaps it's what Neil is saying a little bit more that there are certain teams and programs where 
their philosophy is built and it's the the QB and his knowledge and how he plays is baked into that program's style. So, but to give Shannon Sharp some credit, it, those two games really do matter. And Neil, you ran the numbers about playoff odds, and it might be that the the Patriots do need a lot of help without Tom Brady because they're just going to be mediocre without him, and they're not they're never going to make the playoffs. Right? Yeah. Like if you took away Brady and the two wins, he, the Patriots would have about an eight win projection. Uh, and and if you left him in for all sixteen games, which it seems is going to happen, they would win about ten games according to the statistical modeling that we've seen and that FPI has done also independently. Uh, and those two wins are actually right in the sweet spot of sort of what makes the difference between you making the playoffs and not. Like if you had eight wins, you would have an 11% chance of making the playoffs. If you have a 10-win team, you have 88% chance wow. of making the playoffs. So that difference, the, the curve becomes... Eight times more likely to make the playoffs with... With him, yeah, right, with Tom Brady, then without Pace. Right, yeah, exactly. And even if you took him away for the four games, which is what we had thought would happen before the suspension got overturned, they'd only have about a 67% chance of making the playoffs. So it's a case where, you know, these wins are, are they compound on each other in this zone of contention where, where every little bit makes a huge difference. And then once you get to 10, 11 wins, it sort of tops out and, and you're almost 100% guaranteed to make the playoffs whether you win 11 or 16 games and likewise if you're down to like 7 wins it doesn't actually matter whether you have 7 or 0 you're almost certainly not going to make the playoffs. So to my example earlier if you can get to an 11 win team without a good quarterback for example it's not worth that extra um, well it depends what you think should happen at the playoffs but to get just to get to playoffs you don't need that really good quarterback if you can get there through other means. Right, yeah, and and since the NFL is salary capped, it's all about kind of spending less than the players are worth at a certain amount cuz you're you're paying pretty much as much as any other team. Everyone has sort of the the ability to pay the same amount. So you're trying to find players who are going to deliver more uh value for you than you're paying for, and sometimes the key to do that is to get a quarterback like a Brady or a Manning who are just disproportionately great compared to the rest of the league and so that there's like almost no amount that you can pay them that's too much but then if you don't have that if you have like an Andy Dalton and in our AFC North preview we're going to kind of talk about him uh, as it pertains to the Bengals and how they're a team that sort of needs to rely on a bunch of other things around it and and make it up like you said Chad in a different way using defense using continuity you know among coordinators and coaching staff uh, to try to sort of fill that gap in, a, in an unconventional way. So is it just quarterbacks, though? I mean, Jordy Nelson went down for the Packers. We didn't see the, a huge drop in their win expectancy or projected wins. Yeah, I mean, the FPI, as we mentioned earlier, uh, it's sort of another power rating that tries to project how good teams are going to be and, and run simulations. And they have uh, a model that sort of slots in and out quarterbacks. And, and when a quarterback changes teams, they can, or when one is injured, they can kind of plug in a power rating for the quarterback on top of the team and get a expected strength. But they don't have that for any mm -hmm. other position. They don't have like the left tackle rating. or And it could be that those positions are harder to measure and so if you had more granular data you could ha theoretically have like a defensive back rating that would kind of tweak things a little bit but I think also in the interest of sort of keeping things simple and keeping as few moving parts in there as possible you the quarterback is really the only position that you should worry about that for and even if Jordy Nelson is out at wide receiver the assumption is that it doesn't make anywhere near as much of an impact as if the Packers were to lose Aaron Rodgers. 
And part of that to me feels like the pool of players from which you can choose at these other spots, like at, at wide receiver, even at the if you take at the college level and 365 Division One programs and all of the wide receivers are playing, and you get to a certain level in the top 20 where talented guys separate themselves, but at the same time there is a number, a pool of wide receivers who can are capable at the NFL level where the quarterback pool is just so much smaller that to find a replacement that's even close to the level of production, there's just way fewer options there. Right, and it could also be a matter of even just how easy is it to know who is good and who's bad at a certain position. Like, think about the Baltimore Ravens last year. They had Ray Rice, uh, you know, they they lost Ray Rice, and they were not a good rushing team beforehand. And then they pick up Justin Forsett, who, like, no one had heard of and was kind of a, a free agent journeyman, and he rattles off, you know, a 1,200-yard season and they have one of the best yards per carry of any team. So that's something where it's like we didn't even know who would be good or bad at running back. But then at quarterback, it may be a case where the the really elite guys you can count on being good and giving you a production that's commensurate with their reputation. One other thing I want to talk about is, is how clumped together these teams are. And Kate, if I were to tell you how many teams are going to win more than 12 games this year in the NFL, what would you say? Yeah, you would. I guess I would say like maybe three to four. Yeah, you know? some, but but that doesn't mean that the predictions always show that, right? Right. And so when we did the projections and ESPN uh, Stats Info did the projections, they found that most teams are going to, or they projected that most teams would win somewhere between four and ten games. Mm-hmm. But that seems totally off compared to what teams actually win. And Neil, I was wondering if you could help untangle that that knot for me yeah the that's a case where it's another situation in which we just don't know it's sort of an expression of our lack of knowledge about who's going to be good and bad before a season because if you think about it uh we all know like you said that there are going to be teams that win three games or win 13 games uh but we don't know which teams those are going to be and so if you look at like Vegas or FPI or any of these projection systems, if they want to maximize the accuracy that they have at the end of the season, when you look back and evaluate the projections, they sh- it's in their best interest not to go out on crazy limbs and say that some team is going to win 13 or 14 games. Because even if we know that some team is going to do it, it's really tough to say which one will do it. And it's really a lot smarter to just kind of regress everyone to the mean, cluster them around eight wins, some teams drop as low as six some teams go as high as 10 I think in the FPI the uh, Indianapolis Colts were the number one team by wins and they were projected to win like 10.6 games that was the highest of any team uh, and and it just all goes back to this this lack of certainty and this unwillingness to sort of take crazy risks on uh, predicting a team to be far away from eight and eight so it's essentially that if you you have six to eight teams who you say are going to win, but you know ten point five games, and one of them does win thirteen. You still got eighty percent of the teams right who are going to win between ten and eleven, rather than spiking somebody uh, a bunch of actually predicting all what you actually think for all six to eight, and then you're wrong on all of them. Right, exactly. You want to kind of minimize your your risk that you're taking and and minimize the chances you have to be wrong. And it could also say something about the true talent of NFL teams. Like even though we see teams rattle off 13 and wins and three wins, it may be that there really are no true 13 and, and three win teams in the NFL, that maybe all teams are really clustered around 
you know, six to ten wins in there if you hmm. played out the season a hundred thousand times. But in the version of reality that we actually play out, uh, our parallel universe, then uh, you, you'll see teams rattle off, you know, thirteen just due to luck. Like that extra three wins is the ten wins of talent that they have, and then also whichever team that had the ten win talent also happened to get lucky with health or with players having career years or picking up on that Justin Forsett, you know, off the waiver wire, whereas some other team picked up similarly credentialed player and he wasn't good, you know. So you're saying there is a reality more real than our reality, and it is the statistical reality. Well, well, I don't know about that, but I'm just saying that what we're seeing is by definition a combination of underlying talent and also variance uh, around each performance. That's what we live for, Neil. A little variance in our lives. Variance makes things interesting. Absolutely. Okay, my projection for the length of this podcast is 52 minutes. I don't think there's ever been a hot takedown that actually ended at 52 minutes, but somewhere between 45 and 60, so I think 52 is going to be the most accurate projection. See, I was thinking 49 minutes. Oh, all right. Well, And I'm not going to talk longer if... Oh, you're going to rig it? Yeah, if we're close to that number. Okay, so let's leave it there. We'll check back in and see uh, how long the podcast took. And now to our newest crowdsourcing project. It's really a challenge. More than a project, it involves the video game Madden 16 and a schlub named Walt Hickey. But first, let's get to our hot take. Walt Hickey, the man himself. Do you want to read your own hot take? He's here to read the hot take himself. Yeah. No, I'll answer for my crimes. Uh, I'm better than 245 NFL players at catching footballs. How do you possibly know that? that. Walt Hickey, writer of 538. (laughs) Yeah. So... uh, Here's the gist. Uh, Earlier this year in the spring, Neil and I went down to EA Sports in Tiburon, Florida, to uh, learn about how Madden, the video game, compiles their NFL ratings. And I guinea-pigged it. Uh, As you were mentioning earlier, uh, I'm a schlub. I'm not super athletic. Uh, I have not really participated in organized team sports in a very long time. Uh, I am just kind of a normal dude uh, who drinks too much coffee and doesn't sleep a lot. And the key that we wanted to figure out was how would an average dude fare in the NFL? Uh, The answer is not great at all. At the end of this process, I had a whole suite of Madden ratings. Madden rates each player on a whole bunch of individual statistics like throw power, throw accuracy, kick power, all these sorts of things. And what we essentially found was that I had a catch rating slightly higher than several NFL players for some reason. Not receivers. Like o- offensive linemen. Yeah. No, we're not talking about like like actually good players at catching footballs. We're talking about the players that they've never really had to catch a football before. Like, how many times have you seen Eli Manning, like, run down the field and catch a football? Probably never. So whatever the score was for 245 different players, it was lower than mine. (laughs) Okay, I think we have a video, Walt, of you attempting to to receive a football. (sighs) Emphasis on attempting. Let's take a look. Let's give it a roll. Walt sprints down the field. Walt throws the ball into the ground. Walt doesn't catch the ball. (laughs) The look on your face, Kate, is... uh, And for those who are listening and not watching the video, this is is Walt Hickey. That's a lucky, lucky avatar. Yeah, I know. I look good. I look real good. So that was Walt Hickey. Can we rewind to the part where you're throwing and catching the football again just for fun? If we have to. (laughs) (laughs) So, Walt, that was a look at you doing the kinds of drills that NFL players do in order to get rated. What did it feel like to be there on the field? I'll pretend to be a halftime reporter. Yeah. Oh, man, out there. Uh, 
I just told coach to put me in. It was horrible. <laughs> it was like I was sprinting around all day catching footballs. Uh, Pretty hot that day. Too. It was very warm that day. I'm not used to Florida, and it was like in February, so we were just kind of like you had that initial culture shock. Uh, it was uh, it was nice. It was a little bit more uh, like instantaneous sprinting and chasing and trying to catch footballs and failure on camera than I'm typically used to. But uh, it was a fun time. I just went out there and and played my heart out, and my heart was not enough at all. <laughs> so to get this receiving rating because the one yeah. that we saw I know is a limited sample size very you just saw yeah. that one that you dropped yeah so I'm sure there were more but how many um, passes did you attempt to catch to get the rating we did uh five passes at each length so short passes medium passes long passes which was more than enough to get the point across that I probably shouldn't have a very high rating nonetheless though my actual catch rating was 29 out of 100 which right. while very low there are still a lot of players that have 28 or less. How many of the 15 passes did you catch to get the 29 rating? I had a 40% catch rate across all of them. So how does Madden measure what an offensive lineman's catch rating might be, or Eli Manning's, who's never really caught a game a pass in a game before. So yeah. I think in that case, uh, so when we went down there, we talked to the guy who was the Madden ratings czar, uh, and he that was his official title. He's since moved on to uh, greener Like pastures. on his business card? On his business yeah. card. Ratings czar? It yep. literally said ratings czar. I need a new business uh, card. Right? right. <laughs> yeah, we all do after that. And he, uh, he talked to us about the process, and one of the things was for players whose job description doesn't involve doing certain things, like kicking or catching in this case, uh, there were templates associated with each position. So there were kind of like the baseline for an offensive guard that you know nothing about uh, his passing ability would be, you know, like a 20-something overall at, at throwing accuracy or whatever. Uh, and so you so, beat the template. Yes, I know I beat you the template. You beat the guys who actually haven't been rated in the thing. Entirely, yeah. I beat the platonic ideal of an offensive lineman at th catching a football, basically, yeah. <laughs> so I want to also talk about this challenge, yeah. which is something that we're – trying to do in which people use you as the quarterback for a season do I have that right yeah we want to make this a, a little difficult you know uh, so when we did this project we the whole point of it was to kind of simulate using their game engine how an actual average quarterback an average off the street quarterback would uh, t tank a professional NFL team uh, and the answer is very severely uh, we plugged me in on the New York Giants What was your quarterback rating uh, my quarterback rating, I do not know that off the top of my head. I don't know if we have that statistic, but I can tell you this. When I was the quarterback of the New York Giants, we averaged 2.9 wins per year, which is pretty grim. Wow. And higher yeah. than I thought. Very, much higher, right? But I guess the, the wonderful uh, remaining New York Giants That's were right. able to carry the team. We did play Washington twice in the season, so maybe there's that. Sure. But uh, yeah, so w it was pretty grim. Uh, needless to say, hardly playoff quality, definitely not Super Bowl quality, but that is where uh, the players come in. Okay, so 2.9 wins per season when Madden simulated it. Yes. And so the challenge to listeners and watchers is to put you into the game, and they have to manually create you as a player, correct? Yes. Put you into the game, and all these details about what Walt is, all the different ratings are on 538.com. Go take a look. They so need like to custom cut out of how to build your own wall exactly yeah if you want to see wall. yeah like, like <laughs> how would a normal dude do it running back well you can now find out it's going to yeah. be great uh okay and so they need to their baseline is 2.9 wins that's the average simulation and so they need to do well enough to win the super bowl with you 
Yeah, we never How said that. How hard this was do you be think this challenge will be? Well, good question. I think it's very hard, but I know that there are people out there who are very, very good at video games. So I'm actually like, the, from from the outset, I think that there's basically one of two ways that this goes down. Either we get like three responses in the first week uh, saying yes, we totally were able to beat the game with you as the quarterback because I'm just that good at video games, uh, or we it's not really that possible. Like I, I'm, I think that this really goes either one of two ways. And you want them to not just run the ball all the time. Um, so I understand strategically the advantage of just running the ball, right? Uh, but that's not super fun, right? Like, yeah, just throw it downfield. And is the Madden avatar going to have the sidearm half-cocked? Exactly? Yeah. yeah, no, the grotesque form. Uh, I hope not. I, I really hope not, because apparently I would just be throwing balls directly into the back of the offensive line's head. So, <laughs> How far could you can your avatar throw it? I don't want to comment on that. Okay. No comment. I was, I was usually you would throwing, encourage short play, passes to long passes. Play, yeah, I would stick with out. I would stick with the short passes. I was typically capable of throwing it anywhere from like fifteen to twenty five yards, if I remember correctly. Twenty five might be a little. Twenty five might be a little bit generous, yeah, yeah but you know, I'm sure. Rosy nostalgia. Was, deadly was one way to describe. <laughs> yeah. It. Have you yourself played as yourself, Walt? I'm not even that narcissistic. So you haven't, you have never taken control of Walt. Oh Dick no! And QB. I, oh yes, no, I am that narcissistic. Yes. So I played against um, <laughs> Rex Dixon, who is the head of their gameplay, uh, and we had a nice little scrimmage, and I believe I lost forty-two to seven. Forty-two to seven with, with Walt Hickey's you quarterback. as quarterback. With me as quarterback. So you scored a touchdown. I Odell Beckham Jr. T- scored a touchdown. I just kind of helped on the last play of the game. Right? On the very last yeah. play of the game. Yeah. So it took H- fifty-nine minutes. Had the defense taken a knee, essentially. Uh yeah, no. Uh, yeah. See, that's part of the reason for this experiment, right? Like, I tried it, and it kind of sucked, but I also was not very good at playing Madden against the guy who makes Madden. So we'd like to find out if if, uh, our viewers are any better. Okay, so listeners and viewers, to recap, go to 538.com. Find Walt's post about how to put Walt into Madden, create Walt in Madden, and then take Madden by storm. Can... Do they have to play Walt on the Giants? Oh, God, no. No, no. We wouldn't put that on anyone. No, you can pick whatever team you want to choose. Team with a great defense. Team with a great defense. Yeah. Yeah, what team do you think? What team do you think is ideal? Yeah, let's get this out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd not would, the Packers because I would think that like they would. The Texans or something. That's like Aaron Rodgers is the reason the Packers are. Yeah, right. Yeah, you yeah. want to see him with a bad quarterback already, like but, with an average quarterback. But you also, though, don't you want a, a receiver that can do what Beckham Jr. did when Walt was playing, right. which is like take a, sh- a short screen pass and make something happen downfield? You need a couple good receivers to compensate for just what how about bad. The no, that would be my go-to to be because honest. they got Marshawn and now. Yeah. They got Jimmy Graham, and the D, especially if Cam Chancellor yeah. comes back, is great. If. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so, Kate, you will be playing as the Seahawks to try and beat this challenge. I'm definitely not putting Walt on the Giants because it's already bad enough watching yeah. the Giants, let alone. As a Giants fan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the real ones. So. Okay, listeners, once more, go to 538.com, email podcast at 538.com with any questions. And the first person to do so gets a shout out on Hot Takedown, this very podcast. And mo- vastly more importantly, let's be honest, a signed glossy poster of Walt Hickey in full pads, and it's going to be mailed directly to your house. Wow. Walt, how's your signature? As bad as your throw? Yeah. No, I, there's just no control. It's all over the place. The accuracy alone. Sometimes I write the wrong name. It's fantastic. So. <laughs> all right. Walt, thanks for coming into Hot Takedown. Thank you for having me. For those of you who are watching on video, that'll do it for today. For those of you who are listening on audio, stay tuned for more. 
for our third segment, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to hand over the microphone to our colleague, Carl Bialik, who's been podcasting all week from the U.S. Open. You may have seen the podcast in the Hot Takedown feed. It's called Baseline. It's been great. There's a ton of people saying Baseline from 538 over and over again in all different accents. It's just like very – it's like – remember Serial, how it had that MailChimp ad that everyone was saying MailChimp over and over again? No? You guys didn't listen to Serial? No? Revoke our podcast license. Wow. Right yeah. You're not allowed on the air. All right. Anyway. Hot take. Carl has been doing great podcasts at the U.S. Open. He and Louisa Thomas from Grantland have been talking about Serena Williams as she marches on as of this taping. Um, Roger Federer and why he is on the ascent while Rafael Nadal is on the decline. And it's been great. Uh, and so here, Hot Take Down listeners, is the latest episode. You're listening to Baseline from 538. You're listening to Baseline from 538. You're listening to Baseline from 538. You're listening to Baseline from 548. 538. Damn it! <laughs> 538. I'm Carl Bialik, and I'm coming to you from the National Tennis Center in Flushing, New York. And this is Baseline, our U.S. Open mini-podcast. We're here at around noon on Thursday. People are streaming into the grounds for a day full of quarterfinals at Arthur Ashe Stadium. We're going to start today's episode with a fixture of 538 Podcasts, our significant digit. This is a question about Roger Federer's last 20 matches. And how many of those 20 matches has he held serve every time without being broken? In his last 20 matches, I would say 16? 17. And... You know, Isner had some chances last night, so maybe you just thought that he had broken. And Federer was down love 40 at one point as well. Yeah. So did you watch that match? I watched part of it. We only arrived from the UK yesterday, so a bit jet-lagged. So I watched the first two sets, and then, unfortunately, I fell asleep. <laughs> so so you, you mentioned you fell asleep. Do you find it somewhat dull when two guys just keep holding no, serve? No, I would normally. I'm absolutely... That's why this is, you know, bucket list for me coming here today. And it's just that, obviously, we've been up since... 4 a.m. the day before at home and we'd come out and been in New York and had a few drinks and various things, so... <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, do you think Federer can win this tournament at 34? Yeah, I didn't want him to. I wanted, obviously, Murray, who's gone, and the second favourite is probably Djokovic. And then today we're going in Arthur Ashe, so I love Songa as well, so I'm hoping he beats Silly. So, so of, of the eight guys left, Federer is one of your eight favourites? <laughs> not really. No, not even among the eight. <laughs> okay. He can still come back. I mean, I'm rooting for him, and who knows? We might see him against uh, perhaps Djokovic again in the finals. And uh, perhaps he's just kind of laying low and trying to brush up on certain things that he wanted to to do. So I'm, I still have faith that he might come back and win this. And you said you saw yesterday's match. What do you think of a match like that where both guys just keep holding serve? Is it interesting? I, I do believe so, but I also like to uh, see uh, lots of rallies and things like that, so I, I, I like it both. I'm here today once again with Louisa Thomas from Grantland. Happy to be back, hold and serve. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here, playing from the baseline. Roger is 34, and he's doing this against guys who are 5, 10 years younger than him. How do, how do you think he's doing it? It's pretty amazing. I mean, the stat that really astounded me last night was the... Isner, his opponent, had not been broken at the U.S. Open since 2013, but uh, Federer's record is probably even more impressive considering that he is 
his serve is actually somewhat underrated. He's pretty short when you put him next to someone like John Isner, but he has tremendous accuracy and precision, and um, his serve is hard to read, and, you know, it, it just shows, once again, what a kind of intelligent tennis player he is. Yeah, and I think his intelligence is reflected in where he's placing the serve, like you say, and it's also what happens after the serve. It seemed like every time he got the return in yesterday, Isner was a little bit in trouble, even if it was a short, high return, and Federer has a plan and has the tools to execute it. And you mentioned Isner's streak. I mean, Federer recently had a streak of 116 straight games without being broken, then he had another one of 78 straight. Uh, I mentioned the 17 matches in which he wasn't broken, and eight of them he didn't even face a break point against Novak Djokovic in one of them. That's really compelling statistically for me. Visually, when you're watching a match like last night's, what do you think of hold, 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 tiebreaker? Playing someone like John Isner, those points are quite short. Federer, in particular, has a talent for shortening points, which is something you actually don't see from a lot of other players. I mean, if anything, the kind of eyeball trend of the past five years has been longer, 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 longer both in points and in duration of matches. Roger Federer has been cutting against the trend and, you know, coming into net, closing on short balls, famously now taking returns off the service line. Sneak attack by Sneak Roger. Sneak attack by Roger. <laughs> We've been thinking all... in your territory right there. Yeah, Sabre metrics. Yeah. Uh, partially because of the encroaching, been thinking all tournament, a better name. I still have nothing. Do you have one? <laughs> well, he volunteered... I love it that he volunteered his own alternative. He's like, you could call it Fed Attack, <laughs> you know. Just, he's always he, branding. He is um, always branding. He is so nerdy. I love the fact that we ha- we tend to sort of think that players sort of like mature and become more elegant as they get older. Federer, again, like cutting against trends, has become more and more of a total nerd. Yeah. I stayed last night for the match and then for the press conference, partially because I thought, it's late, he might be a little more loose. And he's always pretty loose in press, but he was nerding it up yeah. and just He might talk taking... about his latest musical outing. Exactly. <laughs> he flashed back to some point in a match in 2001 in Hamburg, and it was like he was transported back there. The transcript wouldn't capture it, but it was, it was just a very Roger after midnight kind of moment. So much was wrong about it. The match point was wrong. I squeezed the ball between the racket and the court on the volley. And I looked where did the volley go, and the ball was like lying on the ground. And I was looking at what the hell is going on here. And uh, he was in the back fence trying to hit a pass, and I couldn't make the volley. And I got so angry, I smashed the racket. I was like, this is enough. I can't, I can't take this attitude anymore. So for me, that was a, a changing moment in my career, my attitude. Uh, you mentioned him cutting against Trent, too. I think maybe one reason we can appreciate it more is because, like you say, it's not the trend. Do you think if he'd been playing 20, 30 years ago with the same personality and tools, he would have looked around what everyone else was doing and become a baseliner and a, had a totally different style? He is a baseliner. Yeah, but. I was about to say, I think, I think he did. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, he was emerging out of an era of huge serve point over, and he was really the kind of greatest exemplar of someone who managed to exploit new technologies and slower surfaces to change the game in a more kind of baseline oriented direction. I mean, in a way, like, he is a statistician's dream, even if he's doing it only intuitively, because he's basically finding inefficiencies and undervalued strategies and... Billy Bean and Roger Federer. Exactly. I mean, I have the feeling that 
someone like Annie Murray is actually looking at a lot of data, I have the feeling, and uh, you know, maybe Roger Federer after his trip to you know Hamilton on Broadway is sifting through IBM stats, but my gut is that he is doing this more on feel and kind an of intuitive an intuitive sabermetrician. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but you know what Roger does, he does right. So. I love this idea that he came around, looked around, saw a lot of servant volleyers, realized he could do it better, and then Nadal, Djokovic, Murray caught up with him, maybe surpassed him, so now he's trying a new thing. So what will he be doing at 38, 39? I can't wait to see, frankly. Uh, I just wanted to quickly mention another big result from yesterday. Kevin Anderson, who had been 0-7 in round of 16s at slams, held his nerve, held his serve, ousted Andy Murray in four sets. Uh, He had been up two sets on Djokovic at Wimbledon, but didn't get it done. Anderson, could he, could he make a run like Marin Cilic did last year, big serve? If he plays like he did yesterday. I mean, it wasn't just the big serve. I mean, some of the most exciting points were ones in which Murray was scrambling, he was scrambling, they were reaching balls that nobody else would get. I mean, these were really exciting rallies. And again, they were fun. They were not the kind of normal stand behind the baseline and just grind it out. I mean, they were all over the court. Anderson played at Nettle quite a lot. Murray's one of the best passers in the game and one of the best lobbers in the game. Murray could not get it over Anderson's head. Murray couldn't get it past his reach. I think that was really actually one of the keys to the match. A lot of angry Andy Murray faces. A lot of angry Andy Murray faces. A lot of the return of Wiley Coyote Andy. <laughs> You're listening to Baseline from 538. So we talked about Federer and his greatness at 34. Let's talk about another all-time great tennis player who was born a month after Federer. I'm talking about Serena Williams. And on each episode, for as long as she's still in the tournament, going for the calendar year Grand Slam, we'll have a Serena stat about her quest. Now, we're recording this in the afternoon of the day that she's going to play Venus in the night session, her older sister, Venus Williams, two-time U.S. Open champ, 35, not holding up quite as well as Serena has in 2015. So let's have a stat about both of them, since they're both still in the tournament as we speak. They've won eight U.S. Opens combined, six for Serena, two for Venus, and no one else left in the women's draw has won a U.S. Open. We know Serena is the big favorite to win three more matches, get the Grand Slam. If Venus does win tonight, can she do it, and would that be maybe a better story? I think it would be a tremendous story. In a way, I think actually it would be even more compelling in some ways than um, Serena winning. Serena has emphatically insisted that there's not really a big difference between winning four in a row and winning four in an arbitrary calendar year. I happen to agree with her. I think that Serena has done everything she needs to do to justify every accolade we can throw at her. I think that the story of Venus at the age of 35 dealing with this autoimmune disorder dealing with several years in which she has not been able to bring it every day you know for either because her game breaks down because it is kind of game is fragile in certain ways or because her health breaks down or because she's just coming up against someone who's better than her I think that if she you know if she gets through Serena I wouldn't pick her as the favorite to win the tournament, but I would say that she absolutely has a chance. I mean, if she plays the way she she played against Belinda Benchich at certain points, absolutely. Speaking of, of Serena's accomplishment, just a side note, it turned out that when Martina was going for a Martina slam, which doesn't sound as good as Serena slam back in the day, Navratilova won 
three in a row, and they actually redefined a Grand Slam to mean four in a row. So I think Serena can say historically she has two Grand Slams. They've just changed the rule book on her. Totally fair. I, I'm with Serena on this one. <laughs> on the other side of the draw from Serena and Venus and who they might play in the final, we have Victoria Azarenka and Petra Kvitova, and they both won two slams, although not here. They're going to play tomorrow Simona Halep and Flavia Panetta. Neither of them have won a slam. I think they're probably not as familiar names even to tennis fans. I know you've written about both of them. Can you tell us a little about what listeners should know about Panetta and Halep? Tennis is a tough game, especially, I think, for Americans who play such a premium on winning. One person wins in a tennis grand slam, and it happens to be usually a very limited number of people. When I wrote about Panetta, I wrote about this kind of the condition of losing, you know, that tennis players have to become comfortable with. Panetta is this kind of operatic player. She sometimes looks like an Italian playing an Italian, you know, in a play. Her ceiling is not as high as some of the other players, but she's actually had a lot of success at the US Open in particular. And I just, I like her style, you know. Simona Halep in some ways is very different. Tennis players tend to show their emotions by just saying, like, come on, pumping their fists. Panetta will cry and scream and all that. Halep is more of, like, the come on variety, but she is a tremendous fighter, and she's also she's kind of a tennis player, tennis player. You know, she has tremendous footwork, tremendous point construction. I kind of fell in love with her game very early in her career and have been um, totally excited to watch her rise. So she had some struggles earlier this year at, at slams, and this is following up on making the French Open final last year, really getting people excited. There's been kind of a trend in the women's game, a player like her breaking through, making her first final, falling off. Do you think that's just a fluke? Do you think she'll turn it around, figure it out, be winning slams in the next few years? She has certain kind of natural limitations. She's really short, and her serve can be punished pretty easily, so she needs to find a serve really fast before she plays Victoria Azarenka. Otherwise, she's in trouble. But... Absolutely. I mean, I think that last year at the year-end championship, she crushed Serena Williams. Serena Williams then crushed her. But she's certainly shown that she can win big matches and beat big players. And I think that for her in particular, there's been a big adjustment um, getting used to the pressure and getting used to the attention. But sure, I mean, careers are unpredictable and they're dynamic and she's pretty young. So, so we'll see. Do you think that'll be the key to getting conversation about women's tennis focus on more players? I think... We see Sharapova pictures all around the grounds in the subway station. She wasn't even in the draw because of injury. We have a Serena stat on every podcast talking about the one player who doesn't have the tennis player's conundrum of usually losing at the end of tournaments. Do you think that's what what it'll take for Halep to win a couple of slams? Uh, I think winning will help her win, honestly. Like, I think, you know, that breakthrough is going to be the breakthrough that does it. I also should say she's really well known in Romania. Good so point. it is not tennis is a global game and I think that Americans tend to forget that and um, tend to only follow the sport in the exactly. two weeks of the US Open, which is why we have this podcast. But <laughs> anyone who follows Simona Halep knows that she is part of a massive contingent of you know unruly Romanian fans that follow Simona around the world. It's pretty crazy. And this is a country that gave a double specialist the flag to carry <laughs> in the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics. Simona actually count. has a diplomatic passport. She was named an ambassador of the country. I mean, this is like the kind of degree to which she is known and recognized in her own country. You know, here she can walk down the street, no problem. 
We're going to wrap again with our favorite moment from the last couple of days. Just really briefly, what, what did you see on the grounds at a match or otherwise that stayed with you? I'm going to pick a Simona Halep moment, actually, which is that uh, yesterday she was playing Sabina Lisicki and she was cramping, Lisicki was cramping. I was in the stands about to retire myself or maybe expire. And there is one point where Lisicki was just gunning. I mean, she was just hitting flat and hard and for the corners. And Simona was desperate and she was running and running and running. And it's really common to see a player talk about fighting and wanting to fight. Simona is someone who, you know, basically gave up at the Australian Open in the quarterfinals and just vowed never to give up again. And lo and behold, you know, she's just running down every last ball. And that was pretty exciting. Kept me out there at least. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. That was a hot day. Mine is from last night. uh, And with all the Federer highlights over the years, it was pretty great to see John Isner have the highlight of the the match. It's it's always fun to see something that you don't really ever see, even playing the brand of tennis you and I play on the courts. And when Isner stretched out his racket and hit a volley that somehow had so much spin, it bounced on Federer's side and back to Isner's side. It it's one of those moments that you don't get to see in person very often. Somebody asked Federer if he'd ever seen it. Federer's seen a lot of tennis. He said, I would think I have. I'm not sure on breakpoint. But it was a nice shot. I was thinking, that was good. That was nice, John. Not so nice against me, but nice, you know, nevertheless. <laughs> and you could tell he was still kind of annoyed about it, but he also said, well done, John. So well done, John, the last American man in the tournament. Thanks a lot, Louisa, for joining us again. Thanks for having me. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to producer Joel Werner. We'll be back with another edition of Baseline on Thursday, and then once more as we head into Championship Weekend. Look out for us on the Hot Takedown feed, and thanks for listening. And that's Baseline 538's Tennis Companion Podcast. Keep an eye out for it in the hot takedown feed this week. It's made me wash dishes much more happily than I would have otherwise while I've been listening to it. Okay. Good to know. Uh, yeah. Great dishwashing pod. do you have a pod. dishwasher? No, I live in Brooklyn, okay? I live you in Brooklyn. You have a dishwasher? Yeah. Oh, we got to talk real so estate I later. move. All right, now on to significant digits. The queen has returned. She was away last week. Allison McCann, 538 graphics journalist with us, visual journalist. Allison, welcome back to the show. Hey, did you guys miss me? Wasn't the same with Jody. (laughs) The queen is back. The queen, I like that. I know. Jody's been deposed. Sorry, Kate. (laughs) So, Alice. Good point. (laughs) I said the Cindy queen. Not the queen of our takedown. You just actually just said the queen. Yeah, which is more of a prime minister. It's cool. It's fine. I just want to be a president, like a non gendered term, (laughs) so I'm cool. Wow. I did not expect that to turn so quickly. Allison, what do you have for us? What is this week's significant digit, the telling number from sports? Um, so this week's significant digit comes to us from Mike Cayley, who writes for ESPN FC, among other places. Um, and the digit is 0.8. Yes, we're getting into decimals now, um, which is the standard deviations, I guess, for how much weirder this year's uh, Premier League is after the first four weeks. And Neil is looking at, at Al- me skeptically. Allison, is, is this another who scored? <laughs> Are we going to have to do a makeup segment next week? No, I hope not. Um, it comes no. from ESPN itself. I don't know. <laughs> it's been vetted. No, so no. He, it's, uh, 
it, it seems pretty simple. Kaylee, like other soccer writers, was just curious. This has been a weird year in the Premier League. The defending champions, Chelsea, are down in 13th place um, with only one win in four games. And at the top of the table is like, well, Man City is at the top, which is not strange, but is Crystal Palace and Leicester City and Swansea and like all these teams that we usually don't see at the top. Um, so he kind of wanted to see how much stranger this was. So he created this early season weirdness rating just by looking at the previous season's top four teams, um, how they were doing after four weeks and how high the current top four finished in the previous season and sort of did a mean absolute error for both of these groups and voila, had a weirdness rating. So if that's okay with you, we're not we're not doing who scored metrics, uh, but taking that as it is, yeah, he found that um, this week's season had a weirdness rating of about five point one two five compared to the average is about three point eight. So, Allison, for our non-statistical listeners, can you just go over st- standard deviations and and what it means to be point eight standard deviations from the mean? Right. Yeah. So I just said that the mean was about three point eight. So we want to see how much further this year is from from that average weirdness. Um, and it's just under one. So so it's I guess just a little bit less than one deviation away from based the on the distribution of what all the weirdness ratings are. Correct. The moral of this being this year is not exactly an extreme outlier. 2006 was our craziest up at 6.37. And so about there is, you know, fluctuation in these first four weeks is not going to tell you that this is like a crazy season. And I'm assuming if if you came back on in like two months, that number would be compressed a little bit. Yeah. And we're going to expect anyway. It's possible, right? The first few weeks there's been more weirdness, quote unquote, than we we are likely to continue seeing yeah it sounds like it's uh more weird than maybe like 60 something percent of seasons if it's like a little bit less than one standard deviation away from the mean but that's you know not like you would expect the average season to be weirder than 50 percent of seasons and less weird than 50 percent of seasons so it seems pretty normal actually. So maybe, so and it's <laughs> non-weirdness so maybe it's just that that Chelsea is extra weird, which makes us think it's more weird mm-hmm. than it actually usually is. We're trying to find the other things that are weird in the league to confirm but, our Right, our, our but really maybe just Chelsea's not that good this year. That could be the case of all of this, but we'll see. It, he talks. He goes on to say, like, other times defending champions like Man- Manchester United in 2007 and eight were down in the bottom half of the table in those seasons and came back to win. So I guess we. I keep bringing us... Bad early Premier League stats. So thank you <laughs> I like for having me. Premier League. All stats, yeah, all stats from early in any season in any sports are bad, I think. so. <laughs> That'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne, you did okay, too. Oh, thanks, Chad. And the Queen. The Queen. I already said goodbye to it. Thanks, Allison. <laughs> but we can say thank you one more time. You want to say thanks to the Queen? Thanks, Queen. Like genuflect? One day you will maybe be the Queen with me, Kate. <laughs> Uh, our podcast producer is Jody Avergan. Our video producer is Ryan Antel. We get production assistance from Jordan Shulkin and today his brother. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. We are, of course, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. We're on iTunes as well. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.
Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio.